to even see a public display of uh, Sankara, anything related to Sankara is just uh, something that you wouldn't see in Burkina Faso. So that says a lot about how over the 27 years uh, after his assassination, the Compaore regime was able to suppress um, his image in the public sphere, but also um, they were able to sort of uh, lead people into a certain complete silence. So elsewhere outside of Burkina Faso, you'll hear people talk about Sankara. Um, but in Burkina, you will not hear, um, uh, with the exception of a few musicians who uh, would often quote his him in the lyrics. And those were not the popular guys. Those are people who were considered renegades. Welcome back to everyone to a new episode of Africa's a Country Talk. If you have no idea what Africa's a Country Talk is, it's a weekly talk and interview show brought to you by Africa's a Country and presented by myself, William Shorkey. I'm based in Johannesburg, and the show is produced every week by Antoinette Engel, who's based in Cape Town. Now, be sure to check out our most recent episode, which was a fascinating conversation with a Columbia-based historian, Adam Tooze, about how COVID remade the world's political order, but at the same time reinforced and re-entrenched a lot of its inequalities, especially the inequalities between North and South, and how the United States and China are caught in a new Cold War and jockeying for favor and power and influence on the African continent. So if you want to check out that conversation, be sure to find it on your favorite podcasting platform, as well as to find snippets on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Please share those widely. We appreciate all of the support that we get from you, our listeners. And if you are willing to support us even further, please head over to africasacountry.com, where you can not only read some fabulous writing on perspectives of current affairs in the African continent, but where you can also support us monetarily by making monthly donations which allows us to continue all of this wonderful work. So very excited about today's episode. Today's episode is going to be an interesting one. So last week, Friday, uh, recording this on Monday, the 18th of October, last week, Friday, the 15th of October, was the anniversary of the assassination of Thomas Sankara. And whilst the celebration of Thomas Sankara's life and the remembrance of his untimely passing is usually an event that happens every single year. This year is a bit special because for the first time, the Thomas Sankara's killers might be brought to justice as a new trial has become, begun in Burkina Faso to try and hold to account those who are responsible for his murder. So no, no better time to, to revisit the life and legacy of Sankara, but also to try and understand exactly what happened when he passed away when he was murdered on October 15th. So very excited to be joined by two guests who are gonna enlighten us tremendously on this issue. Uh, Brian Peterson and Dr. Lasan Widraugo. Uh, professor Peterson is a professor of history at Union College in upstate New York, specializing in West Africa and particularly Mali, Burkina Faso and Senegal. He completed his PhD dissertation in history at Yale and in 2011 published his first book on Islam in Southern Mali under colonial rule, 
which was called Islamization from Below, the Making of Muslim Communities in Rural French Sudan, and that was published by Yale Press. Since 2012, he has started more focused research on the revolution of Burkina Faso, which culminated in his most recent book, which was published this year, and it's called Thomas Sankara, A Revolutionary in Cold War Africa, and that came out with Indiana University Press. Be sure to get yourselves a copy. And a lot of that book's contents are going to creep their way into this interview today. Our second guest is Dr. Lasan Widraugo, who holds a PhD in Media Arts and Studies and a Master's of International Studies from Ohio University in the United States. He's an analyst of political governance, media, and conflict in Sahelian and West Africa. Dr. Widraugo is a Fulbright alumni and a 2020 Africa's a Country inaugural fellow, which we are pretty happy to have him be a part of. He currently works as an adjunct lecturer at Université Joseph Kizerbo in Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso, which is where he joins us from. So gentlemen, thank you very much for, for being here for today's conversation. Uh, a very important conversation. And I mean, Sagara's trial is finally underway, 34 years after his killing. It's being presided over by a military tribunal and 14 men stand accused. It started on the 11th of October, but there's now a two-week postponement, which was granted until next week, Monday, the 25th, because the defense lawyers claimed they needed some time to prepare and peruse over the thousands of documents which was produced by the prosecuting team. So when someone is watching these events unfold, I think a natural thought that comes across one's mind is, how did this process come together and how the hell is it only happening now? Lassan, do you want to start or? Uh, we, we can go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the, you have to remember that Blaise Compare was in power for 27 years after the murder of Thomas Sankara. And so every effort to investigate the assassination was blocked by the Compare regime. You know, it wasn't, and it wasn't until, say, 10 years after Sankara's murder, uh, finally in 1997, that the process started when Mariam Sankara got a lawyer, Benewin Sankara, who had been working with opposition figures um, in Burkina Faso. Until then, that things started, right? Um, but every effort was was blocked by the Kampari regime. We know that, for example, it wasn't until 2008 that Sankara's uh, death certificate was changed um, from saying that he died of natural causes to something else. Uh, it wasn't finally until 2014, October of 2014, that things started really in, in sort of with, in good faith um, in terms of an investigation into the murder of Sankara and his companions. Um, and that was after Kampara had been overthrown. So it took that long to really get things started. Um, and then it took off during that year, during the interim government under Kafando, ironically enough. Um, uh, and they almost put the kibosh on it in September. You remember, I'm sorry, uh, Gilbert Diendere's coup of what, September 16th, 2015, the day before they're about to make some announcements about the investigation to Sankara's murder. Um, he staged a coup, right? Overthrew the government, put himself on the throne for a week, and then finally that was overturned uh, due to popular pressure and mobilization in the streets. Um, and then it really began in earnest. So from that point on now, it's been six years, right? And so they've done interviews with people, they've had depositions, France has forwarded some documents 
Um, and so now they've marshaled enough evidence um, under the leadership of um, uh, the judge, uh, Francois Yamayogo, uh, to finally have a trial, right, of these individuals. And like you said, there are 14 people, right, who are on trial. Uh, many of them were accomplices. Most of them were low-level, I would say, commandos, right, who were actually involved in the military components of the operation. Then you have people like Blaise Compora being tried in absentia as an accomplice to murder, threatening uh, state security, things of that nature. You have the doctor, Jean Diebre, who is being charged with falsifying a death certificate. Um, you have people like um, who, uh, Jean-Pierre Palm, who was the head of who's at the gendarmerie. So you have a list of important people, including Gendre, right, who's been in prison since, uh, well, since he was arrested in 2015, but now he was sentenced to 20 years. He's probably going to spend the rest of his life in prison, as will well, his wife was, was sentenced to 30 years. I think she's still at large. But um, So you have some of the main actors. Blaze is going to escape justice for the most part. Many of the people who are implicated in are already dead or they fled or they were murdered. Um, France will not be touched, right? Any foreign powers that are involved in the assassination will not be brought to justice. That's a difficult thing to do. Um, but that's how I would just frame it initially as a sort of the, the overview of the process from 19, from October 15th, 1987 to present. And it took, it took place, right, on Blaise's watch, Blaise Compare's watch, continually stopping uh, the process from moving forward. And Lassan can uh, certainly uh, remind us the difficulties, of, difficulties of doing research on Sankara at the time. I mean, you, you know, pictures of Sankara were abolished. You know, he was virtually erased from memory. Uh, you couldn't talk about him. You know, I mean, so it, it was, a, it was a, a reality where Sankara did not exist. He existed at the grassroots level in people's memories. So there, so there was that living archive of Sankara alive in people's minds. But you know, you couldn't go to the market and find pictures of him or books or or audio cassettes of his speeches or things of that nature. That stuff was just abolished. It was banned, right? So slowly things opened up. But but for the most of that history, yeah, Sankara was erased from public culture. Uh, absolutely. Over the times, um, to even see a public display of uh, Sankara, anything related to Sankara is just uh, something that you wouldn't see in Burkina Faso. And right. when you talk to people, in private spheres, they are likely to open to talk to you about it, but um, in, uh, um, in privacy, they will talk about it, um, but they will never accept to be quoted or um, said anything about it at all. So that says a lot about how over the 27 years uh, after his assassination, the compadre regime was able to suppress um, his image in the public sphere but also um, they were able to sort of uh, lead people into a certain complete silence. So elsewhere outside of Burkina Faso, you hear people talk about Sankara, um, but in Burkina, you will not hear, um, uh, with the exception of a few musicians who uh, would often quote his hymn in their lyrics. And those were not the popular guys. Those are people who were considered renegades. So, so now in, in Burkina Faso and Lasan, maybe you could tell us a little bit about this. What is, what has the response been from the public? What is the mood? Is there a belief that this trial can deliver some degree of justice, not only for the family, but for Burkina Bears as a whole? Is there a sense of too little, too late? Uh, how are ordinary people viewing 
this trial and how long might it take? There's a lot of excitement about uh, this trial, um, but at the same time, there's a sort of a um, lack of trust in the process itself. People believe that, oh, our justice system is actually being tried through this trial. Uh, depending on how they will come out of this trial, we will realize whether, we'll, we'll determine whether we have an independent justice system, which is capable of uh, taking hard decision and uh, arriving at uh, clear decisions and uh, or not. Um, and if you if you look at the opening, I attempted to 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 attend, but uh, unfortunately I was late. But there was no public mobilization. There was not a lot of uh, 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 as what we expected to see hundreds of, of uh, citizens um, uh, in the room. Um, I was sort of a, some degree disappointed, but at the same time, uh, the civil society movement are having some gathering elsewhere. They're having a lot of uh, small conferences, small talks. Um, so it's hard to say, but at this moment, uh, it is actually the entire justice system of Burkina that is put at trial. Because we are not just trying uh, the murder of Sankara, but we are also trying an imaginary and uh, 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 I will say uh, um, a paradigm, a historical paradigm that allowed his murder to take place. So, uh, and that brings a lot of complications, of course. And uh, in, in, we need to also take into consideration the context in which uh, uh, the, the current political context, the security context that is going on, and the talks about reconciliation that is going on. And some people have voiced clearly that this is uh, to try uh, Blaise Compaore is to want something and it's opposite. We're talking of reconciliation, but we're also trying to bring him to justice, which uh, is kind of like complicated for the layman who doesn't understand uh, what is going on. I wanna, I wanna go to, you, you mentioned the historical paradigm that led to his assassination. I want to talk a little bit about his assassination. Traveling back to the events of Thursday afternoon on October 15th of 1987, considering the fact that up until that point already, Burkina Faso had already had a well-established history of power changing hands by coup, Despite the very grim events, is, is there a way in which Sankara and maybe those around him could have possibly seen it coming? Or was it a matter of them being completely caught off guard? I think Brian deals extensively on this issue in his new book, which I recently got a copy. I haven't read it, unfortunately, yet. But uh, that chapter on uh, the international atmosphere, the different uh, protagonists uh, that were at play at that time is quite important. I think he can speak uh, uh, loudly uh, about that, largely about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, the the, the assassination, um, it, I mean, there's there's the, the, the proximate context and then there's the, the, the larger context. I mean, I think that you have to almost go back to when he was arrested on May 17th, 1983. Um, yeah. And at that time, you know, he was the prime minister in the government of Jean-Baptiste Widerago, GBO. 
Uh, he had brought, been brought to power through popular support. There had been a coup just a, several months before that. Um, he was reluctant to take that position, but because he was part of a faction of progressive young soldiers, they sort of managed to get him into this position of prime minister. Um, and the French engineered basically his arrest on May 17th, 1983, you know? And so from that point on, there was a pattern of French intervention to destabilize Sankara. Um, they saw his anti-imperialist message as a threat to French interests. Um, you had the old guard of people like Yorian Somay, you know, who were doing the bidding of the French. Uh, and so Sankara was rocking the boat, right? Um, and, but, but there was this kind of hope that he would be taken into the neo-colonial order of things. People like Huifwe Bonnier and others hoped that he could be cultivated, he could be sort of tamed to you know, play by the neo-colonial rules of the game. So he comes to power, you know, August 4th, 1983, um, and, but he's not saying the right things, right? And then there's the famous you know, Africa-France uh, summit um, in, in France in uh, October of 1983, and sort of, it's a sort of trial by fire moment when he's under, under constant attack by French journalists. So from then on, there's an effort by the French intelligence, journalists, uh, and such to diminish, to discredit um, the revolution. Um, the first reference that I saw of a possibility of a, a follow-on coup led by Blaise Compaoré is, is pretty soon after. I mean, this is like in February. 1984, I saw in some uh, secret doc, a secret uh, embassy cable that was sent from Ouagadougou to Washington, speculating on the possibility that Blaise Compaoré could take power. This is 1984. So from that point on, there's already chatter. There's already suspicions that there might be a follow-on coup led by Blaise Compaoré. A lot of this has to do with the fragility of the revolutionary structure, the fragility of the CNR at the time. You had a civilian component to it which was the PAI, the ULCR, these are civilian parties, this is the civilian left, right? They were the social movement that undergirded, that supported Sankar's uh, rise to power. Eventually there's a schism, there's a falling out. So within a year of the revolution beginning, the civilian left is basically shoved aside. So it was really Sankara that had those unique connections to the civilian left. When those withered, right, it was just the military that was in power, in de facto power. You had the civilian left who was still there, right? But now it was a military consolidation of power. Then it became a power struggle at the summit of the CNR between Campari, Sankara, Henri Zongo, Lingani. Incidentally, those two latter were also executed summarily in 1989, right? So the trail of blood goes further than just 1987. So the revolution, you know, obviously hit its stride. There were some great successes along the way. Uh, unfortunately, however, in, in certain in certain quarters, there were efforts to destabilize things from within, you know, from without. Um, internally, Compare was sort of um, using sort of politics and domestic discontent to heap blame on Sankar's back. There were a lot of incidents during the revolution that that were seriously unpop uh, seriously um, ser seriously unpopular with the population with respect to like the, the, the firing of teachers in, in 1984. There's a coup that took place, an attempted coup, and there were a bunch of soldiers who were executed. And so there were a bunch of grievances that eventually accrued to Sankara, and they were able to take advantage of that in 1987. Yeah, and uh, we could even say that to some extent, he was pretty aware of uh, this situation, and he knew that 
um, eventually, if Ku uh, was to be led by Gleskin Powery, there's no way he could escape that. And he says it openly that um, if any time uh, uh, Blaise Compaori was to organize a coup against him, there's no way he will escape it. He knows him so much, and those were his words, he knows him so much that uh, any um, decision or any uh, direct action he would want to take against him is um, he just had to assume it. He, he cannot avoid it. And that is exactly what happened. In right. And just to, I'm, so, I'm sorry, well, I was going to just to sort of have a little balance of perspectives. I mean, I mean you have the, 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 out, the, the external uh, component as well. So we're talking about the internal component. Lassana right. was just mentioning Compar. Then you have to bring in the external um, arena, which is probably worth considering. People are not going to be on trial for that, but, you know, we should be aware that Situating the, the, the coup, you're talking about paradigmatic shifts and the ways in which you could kind of foresee the coup happening. I mean, I think it helps to frame it in that arena, which obviously is the French neocolonial uh, arena and the repeated efforts of the French to destabilize the revolution. Eventually, this sort of reaches a point in late 1985, the Christmas War of 1985 with Mali, which is a war that is largely pushed by the French and Huifue Buanyi pushing Mali into a border war with Burkina Faso. Um, and from that point on, the efforts to destabilize the revolution become more and more aggressive. Through 1986, for example, there's a falling out between Sankara and the French. There's a falling out between Sankara and the United States over the bombing of Libya, right? In, in April 15, 1986, there's the US bombing of Libya in response to some uh, purported terrorist attacks in Europe and Berlin and such. So the U.S. launches, Reagan launches this bombing of Libya. Sankara takes a stand. He completely uh, uh, disengages from Western diplomats. He refuses to talk to the French ambassador, refuses to talk to the U.S. ambassador. He becomes diplomatically isolated. So for a year plus, Sankara is refusing to talk to the resident diplomats, importantly the U.S., the French, and others. So who steps into the vacuum? Compoire and others. They start to shape opinions about Sankara. Blaise Compare was meeting with the U.S. ambassador about two months before the assassination. This is in July, slightly shortly before the U.S. ambassador left. Um, and I talked to the U.S. ambassador about this, and he said, "Well, you know, we had lunch together. We had a wonderful time. He was talking. You know, his wife Chantal was complaining about the socialist nonsense that was going on. That her father had a Cadillac in Cote d'Ivoire. That they wanted to return things the way they were, um, and." And so that gets at another issue, which is to say that the moment that Campari um, uh, was pulled into the power uh, vortex of Félicien Houphouët-Boigny, the president of Côte d'Ivoire, things changed as well, right? Campari married Chantal. Now he had access to a different kind of lifestyle. I don't want to oversimplify things, but we do know that he was finally able to see the possibilities of luxury, the possibilities of self-enrichment, right? Kwefebwani was play, paying for the marriage, he was giving them gifts, things like that. So he starts to do the bidding of Kwefebwani. And I'm not saying that Kampari was just a sort of a tool. They were kind of using each other. But once he had Kwefebwani in his corner backing him, things began to change, right, through 1986. Um, so then we fast forward, right, we fast forward to 1987. Sankara starts to shift in a direction 
There are some grievances that are growing within Burkina Faso during this time uh, with respect to labor unions, the students. There is some discontent that is growing. Some of it has to do with the infighting at the political leadership of the CNR. Talked to a lot of people who said, well, things were going re really well, 83, 84, 85. Then things started to go off the rails a little bit. Um, in my reading of it and what I've heard is that the revolution started to lose some of its steam. Um, people still widely admired Sankara. He was still a political hero. They still respected him for what he was trying to do. But some of the, re some of the revolution's policies were no longer being accepted. Um, people were sort of like gumming up machinery. They were refusing to cooperate. The bureaucracies, they were gumming up certain policies. Um, students were refusing to go out to work on the collective fields, things of that nature. This was already in the spring of 1987, say May, around that time. So now Campoire starts to take advantage of this. He sees there are discontents growing. Sankara tries to turn the tide, makes a big speech in Bobo Gilasso. Uh, he, causes, he calls for a pause in the revolution, sort of a rec an early call for the rectification of the revolution. He said, we're gonna, we're gonna ease up now, we're gonna slow things down a little bit. Now this accelerates Campoire because he realizes that if Sankara can change the narrative, right, and start to address some of the problems and the grievances people are having, that they might be able to steer the ship back on course. Campari decides to strike at this point, right? Grievances are riding high. The revolution is kind of, you know, in the doldrums a little bit. So now there's a crucial moment during that summer when France decides to withhold funding. Um, and it's something that some don't know about the revolution, but it's hard to transition from a neo-colonial sort of state, if you will, um, that was receiving 40%, 50% of its funding from France to complete sovereignty, complete uh, autarky, right? It's not like Sankar comes to power in, in 1983 and they cut all funding sources, all aid from the French. They're trying to sort of whittle away at it, right? And they're trying to promote this self-reliance idea, but you don't just flip a switch, boom, and suddenly you're self-reliant. And in four short years, it's, it's hard to accomplish that. So even right up through the end of the revolution, the CNR is depending on French aid. However, in July then, um, there are new conditions that are imposed. And remember, 30, 40% of the budget coming from France, previously about 10, 15% had, had been coming from the United States. The United States had cut aid from about 20 million to one, almost nothing. So you have 50% of the CNR's budget, basically this is being whittled away. So now you have other grievances within the CNR. For example, two weeks before Sankara's murder, you have the Minister of Finance reaching out to the World Bank um, IMF for structural adjustment uh, program behind Sankara's back. So France is able to use this financial pressure, right, to eventually produce cleavages uh, within the CNR and soon Sankara is hemorrhaging all of his support. And so people are thinking, well, you know, people who had been supporting Sankara now start to rethink their positions as this pressure comes to bear on the CNR and people realize they won't be able to pay their bills. So the, the financial pressure was immense, uh, and that really catalyzed a change uh, within the CNR. And I think that also I, was possible. Yeah. Can I ask a question about that? It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry for going on. No worries, no worries. The way you describe okay. how all of these pressures heightening in and exacerbating and a finance minister going behind mm -hmm. Sankara's back to negotiate this deal yeah. that Sankara right. was reluctant to. Something right. I've wondered, and I'm interested mm -hmm. to hear your thoughts, yeah. is mm -hmm. that 
we get this portrait often, and it's a well-accepted portrait of Sankara as an undeniably exceptional individual. He's incorruptible and he's selfless. And I've often wondered interpersonally, to what extent did that contribute to his gradual isolation from those around him? You're talking about Campare earlier, starting to see the, the path of luxury and self-enrichment as a, as a very enticing one. And Sankara once famously said somewhere that the root of the problem is that they want to enrich themselves and I'm preventing it. Right. So there's a way in which I, as we often know anecdotally in our own lives, um, an individual like that who is that incorruptible can start to become really insufferable to the people around them. They can seem sanctimonious, they can seem condescending and so on. So in other words, was part of what made him so vulnerable throughout his his tenure as a revolutionary leader, precisely the fact that he was principled to a fault. Yes. Did, did you want me to respond or Lathan? Or? Any, go ahead, anyone. So, I would say that the 80s, um, that era was an era when uh, politics um, without corruption was something that is unimaginable. Uh, politics without uh, uh, this kind of international meddling, which is oftenly uh, done, was something that was quite in, unimaginable. Politics of uh, you scratch my back here and then I scratch your back there is the order of the day. And Sankara emerges in this context and he's uh, representing a certain vision of things. And he, he is aware that it demands a lot of sacrifice, which he was uh, ready to submit himself to those kind of sacrifices that the revolution demanded. Uh, but the people around him uh, might have bought into the ideal in the beginning, but over time, as the, the price uh, became much more steep, um, people were you know, negotiating, finding other ways to, to go around it. So, um, uh, a, a, a man like Sankara would not uh, uh, be able to to survive in this context. It was pretty clear that uh, the, the destiny uh, is already played, um, if you want to read it that way, because the context was not ready for uh, this kind of ideology to emerge from a country which was not even considered in... Uh, you know, international arena, it's not considered as an important um, um, strategic country. Even the Russian at the time was not were not considering Burkina Faso as a, as a strategic ally, uh, to, to speak so. And Sankara was not uh, someone to be co-opted by a socialist, uh, any socialist movement. He was actually very critical of uh, existing socialist movements. And that did not really facilitate uh, uh, things for him. Yeah, I, I would concur with what um, Lasan is saying in terms of putting it in the, the larger context um, that, that he was swimming against uh, patterns of, of governance, as you know, Will, too, um, that, that were knee deep, neck deep in corruption. That was the whole point of taking power. Um, so when you have Sankara issuing from the military, surrounded by his military comrades, um, many of them were not principled the way he was. The civilian left, as I mentioned, had been nudged to the side. And so there you had 
the scramble for power at the summit of the CNR. And people like Campoire, they had different thoughts about the use of state power. It wasn't necessarily about a revolution. It was about consolidating power, self-enrichment. But to go to your point, um, uh, Will, too, I mean, there is something that we have to trace back to Sankara. Um, you know, he was the centerpiece of the revolution. He was the leader of the revolution. He cast the largest shadow. He had the most power um, as an individual. Um, and there have been criticisms. Um, he was an, ex an extraordinary person in terms of his vision, in terms of his work ethic, in terms of his drive, his revolutionary commitment, his incorruptibility, all of those things that you mentioned. And we know for that, just, just factually that he did wipe out corruption, right? Through the People's Revolutionary Tribunals, through the reform of government, through various austerity measures, you know, it was a clean sweep. Uh, There's greater transparency in government. The, the resources of the state were being funneled to ordinary people, right? From the better off urban folks to the rural masses, right? So what was being done was real. Like it was an authentic revolution in that sense. It was designed to help the people. To do it under the conditions and under the circumstances in which he was trying to do it was, was difficult. And it required a certain kind of discipline and a certain kind of commitment that meant that there was probably less talkback, there was less pushback than you might want in a pluralistic democratic society. Then you have per the personality that you mentioned, Will. Um, yeah, I mean, Sankara was a very hard driving individual. Uh, I mean, he worked tirelessly. Um, he was had this mono focus on Im improving the conditions of ordinary people, of fighting injustice, but he could also be very demanding. He could be very impatient. He could even be sort of uh, impetuous. Um, when he thought he had the right idea and he had a plan, he would just make the decision and go. There are many occasions, and the criticisms, by the way, I made sure that the criticisms that I lodged in my book, I, I made sure that they are coming from his friends because otherwise people would say, oh, this is a hatchet job. This comes from his closest friends who made these criticisms, by the way. I was very careful to do that. My, my point there is just to say that when he made announcements of, of big policy changes, they were often criticized along the lines of, you know, rent-free housing for the year, right? End of 1984, he announces that no one is going to have to pay rent. That's great if you're a tenant. How is that if you're a landlord? Right? What are the discontents that are going to sort of mount as a result of that? Um, we're going to ban all fruits from being imported into the country, he announces in April 1987. Part of the self-reliance push. Obviously, it's an admirable thing, import substitution. It's an old policy. People have tried that many times. Lots of discontents were generated because of that. So, so he did make policy errors, and oftentimes it was based on decisions that he just made impulsively on the spot. Um, and... You know, he had a certain amount of confidence. Um, people couldn't really keep up with him. I, I mean, I talked to some of his closest friends and, and, and colleagues, and they said, you know, it, it was hard to keep up with Sankar, morally, ethically, just in terms of the sheer output of the individual, the amount of work that he was able to put in in a given day, right? He slept very little. He was always on the move. He always had other projects that he was engaging in. Um, so, yes, I think, I think that's a correct analysis as well, that we have to think about Sankar as an individual and how that sort of drove things. Um, and, and what came with that was were, were certain unintended consequences or maybe predictable consequences. Yeah. And, and something it, it, it leads me to, to consider is that thinking about Sankara as this exceptional individual, I'm, on the one hand, I think you both correctly point out how the revolution very much was real and lived for 
Bakia bears, but mm-hmm. there's also a way in which Sankara's leadership feels typical of a lot of the leadership of the anti-colonial time in Africa, where it was dominated by a handful of charismatic, exceptional individuals who sort of fill the type of the, the philosopher king, so to speak. Right. Uh, extremely virtuous, extremely hardworking, um, extremely sensitive to, to the people they lead, but in a way, too much of the revolutionary agenda being centralized around them to the extent that when they pass away, uh, the kind of beatification of those great historical leaders can have that kind of demobilizing and, and chilling effect. And this because yeah. thinking about once Sankara passes, often I wonder, well, how come there wasn't enough of a, of a backlash or a resistance against, against Campore's, uh, against his coup? How come Campore was able to so successfully erase Sankara from the public memory and his memory had to be consigned to the grassroots? So also thinking about something that was touched on earlier, how well-developed was his constituency at the time? Or And, and bearing in mind, I'm, I'm being slightly unfair considering the fact that uh, he, he had less than five years to, to develop all of this, but trying to think about, on the one hand, the power of a charismatic and exceptional leader, but also the fact that you need more than good leadership in order to successfully carry out a revolutionary agenda. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's a, a fair um, criticism. It's a fair observation to be made. Um, and I think uh, Sankara wanted, uh, in the long term, his vision was to actually uh, um, invest in the youth. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking specifically about uh, the orphans who were sent to Cuba or those who were sent to um, Russia or elsewhere to, to receive training. Or uh, the pioneer, which are the younger generation, those who don't have any other experience of life beside the revolution. So had he gotten perhaps four or five more years on top of the um, uh, time he, uh, he got, perhaps that would have helped him to build uh, a better base. But the team that he started with was a team that is already, uh, was at some point very fatigued. And uh, he himself put it clearly in one of his uh, interviews when he said that it's, it looks like he's on a slippery slope on a bicycle and he just have to keep pedaling. He has to keep going, otherwise he's going to fall on the left or on the right. So I think that image pretty much captured what was going on at that time because he was not able to have uh, uh, people who with strong convictions, equal convictions at the position where he was. He was fighting or he was struggling with uh, raiders who were not, who at some point figure out that we don't have to do this. We could actually uh, take over. We could actually carry this revolution without Sankara. We can continue this line of doing things without Sankara. We don't need his ways of doing things. There should be another moderate way of developing this country. There should be another moderate way of connecting with the international community and taking Burkina Faso where it wants to be without having to go through 
all the drama that Sankara is presenting on the international stage. So the minute that uh, his close collaborators subscribe to that kind of vision, it becomes really hard to think about uh, another Sankara emerging quickly after the fall of Sankara. And uh, when, when Kompaori came to power, he had all the, the, the advantages. Uh, he had everything in his hand to be able to, 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 to go uh, to quickly erase Sankara's image. You have an international community who is not in favor of uh, the likes of Sankara. You have a local community who is fatigued and tired of uh, the revolution. And uh, you have a uh, um, power in your hands in a military which is quite divided and headless, topless. So um, I think that gave him, uh, give Compaori uh, a recipe to um, uh, quickly uh, stretch his reach over the, the entire country. Even uh, being able to collaborate with someone like Gaddafi uh, right after the death of uh, Sankara is something that is quite unimaginable think about it, come to think about it. But he was able to do that. Um, there we go. Sorry about that. Yeah, I, I would concur with what Lasan was saying I, in, in terms of understanding what happens post Sankara and Kampari's ability to consolidate power. I mean, he had he had so many backers at that point. We know, for example, the day after the Kampari takes power, the Libyans are flying in weaponry. Right. We know that he has support from the neighboring heads of state, for example. They're sending messages of congratulations on your coup, if you can imagine, right from Togo, from Cote d'Ivoire. I mean, the only neighboring head of state who mourned Sankara's passing and protested was, was Ghana and, and Jerry Rawlings. The rest of the neighboring heads of state were celebrating. That's a lot of regional support, plus Gaddafi, plus France, plus the United States. So you have that international regional support uh, backing you up. You have the consolidation of military power, the control over the gendarmerie, the police, the CDRs are liquidated eventually, but the military, all the regional bases, Kampara had already slowly consolidated that power. So from a military standpoint, there wasn't a whole lot that ordinary people in Burkina could do to push back against that. And when they did, they were arrested. They were killed, right? I mean, it was not a safe place to be. I mean, people went silent uh, because they had to, just out of fear. Um, there were efforts in the first few months after uh, Sankara's murder to mobilize some kind of resistance. Those individuals who were leading that were all arrested, tortured, imprisoned. In prison, sometimes for six, nine months, some of them were killed, right? So from the Burkinabe perspective, whether you're in Ouagadougou or wherever, it was futile to actually try to push back against the popular front of Les Campare. Um, But another component I just want to add on to what Lasano was saying and that is the, the, the rural component, the, the, the grassroots component, the rural level was largely depoliticized by this point. Uh, they were not in the position to revolt against Campari. Um, many of them had been sort of uh, depoliticized towards the end. They had started to disengage. Uh, the CDR system, the Revolutionary Defense Committee system, kind of like um, maybe like the assemblies in Cuba or some, maybe kind of like the Soviets, but the CDR system uh, had started out as a good idea. Right. That is to say, put the power, decentralized power, put the power in the hands of, of rural people. Give them a voice. These were elected assemblies. Right. And there would be uh, female delegates. There'd be delegates for different roles. And then you had this pyramidal structure 
with uh, elected officials all the way up to the very top at which you did not have elections for those individuals, right? But the lower levels, you did have elections. So people bought into that. They had a voice. They, there was transparency. They could take initiative, right? So, so but however, unfortunately, the so-called reactionaries in the parlance of the time started to infiltrate the CDRs and started to deform them. They started engaging in all sorts of unspeakable acts of corruption, seizing livestock, doing all kinds of things that made them very unpopular with the people. Not all of them were doing that, but enough of the CDRs were sort of going off the ranch and doing all sorts of things. Uh, you remember that the CDRs were playing a role in security. So they were in a security guise for a long period with weapons. Not all of them had Kalashnikovs, but they were armed with clubs or whatever. They're manning security checkpoints. And so there's a feeling in which people started to distrust that aspect, that most grassroots aspect of the revolution. So Sankar in 1986 and then 1987, they called this big conference, right? Conference to reform the CDRs, 1986 and finally 1987. And they're trying to reform these kinds of things. So Sankar was aware that the grassroots structure that they had put in place was not working, that it was actually producing grievances. Um, so there was, to your point, Will, about why, about the grassroots level, why it wasn't there, this revolutionary structure that sort of like lived on past Sankar. The part, there was a structure, but people had lost faith in it, um, is, is, is how I see it too, at, at the, at the yeah. especially in rural areas. Mm, and and, and to that, go ahead, go ahead, Lassan, please. Yeah, to add to that, you, you also have to uh, factor in uh, the fact that uh, uh, landowners in the rural areas were pretty much uh, disenchanted with the revolution because they found themselves in a situation where Sankara is saying, you don't own the land. Everyone owns the land. Mm -hmm. So, and those were the chieftains, the small rural chiefs, and uh, the people who were supposed to actually organize the grassroots people. And when Sankara was killed, it was some sort of a, a relief for them. So, it would be really difficult for a, a, a person in, a, in one of the 8,000 8, villages of Burkina Faso to be able to organize and involve. By, by passing those landlords who were disenchanted when they were still in the background and uh, playing politics. So that too is a, a quite of an important element that did not favor uh, a rural upheaval uh, against Kompawi in the early days of his uh, tenure. Yep, 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 exactly. To what extent did a left exists outside of Sankara. So something you were mentioning earlier, Brian, is that uh, the civilian left was was well-developed and it had strong connections to, to Sankara, uh, but then over time that became destabilized by military forces and power was concentrated in those ranks. But thinking of critics of Sankara, of the left, for example, like uh, Joseph Kizerbo, um, who now has a university named after him and who actually left the country during Sankara's rule. When Sankara was deposed, was there a way in which those forces could enter into the scene and sort of take on the baton of, of pushing an emancipatory politics in Burkina Faso? Of course that didn't happen, but was there an opportunity or is it, is it overestimating the size of of the left outside of Sankara was just too much of it uh, concentrated to, to his orbit. There, 
there was a very there has been a very robust uh, political left in in Burkina Faso's history, Upper Volta's history, um, that goes back you know to the, the post independence period that uh, culminating in, in the January 1966 overthrow of. Um, uh, Mauricio Miyogo. Um, so people had been mobilized, whether it's from the context of the labor union movement, the context of student activism. Uh, we know that many of those people of Sankara's generation uh, were in universities and such in the post-1968 era. Right? They were studying in the universities around uh, West Africa. They're studying in the universities in, in France. Uh, at the time that Sankara himself was in Madagascar doing his military training, you had the formation of a very robust uh, political left, largely in exile. that starts to come back during the 1970s, right? They start to form these uh, leftist parties. Uh, some of them had issued or been derived from other uh, leftist parties, like the PAI had been formed actually in Dakar and Senegal. Um, and some of those individuals had come back earlier in the 1960s, people like Adama Touré. Um, there had been a very active uh, labor movement. Um, so the left existed during the period of the revolution. And you had these small leftist parties. I wouldn't call them, I guess they were kind of mass parties, PAI, Lipad, I mean, it was sort of a, but remember, we're still talking about a small number of people in Ouagadougou, uh, workers, sort of the petite bourgeoisie, if you want to call them that, um, labor leaders. Um, we're talking about place of employment that might have 15 to 20 people, not thousands of workers, right? These are small businesses, uh, small enterprises. Um, so, that said, they played an incredibly important role in mobilizing the people, leading to the rise of Sankara in 1983. The PAI, right, led by Adama Touré, Philippe Drago, ULCR, yeah, all those people, um, exactly, Valer Somay, ULCR, and, and, and all of these groups that came together, uh, they buried some of their differences. There was a little bit of an older brother, little brother disconnect between the PAI and the ULCR in terms of the PAI being the older uh, uh, political party on the left, and the ULCR was trying to catch up with them. Um, and that was part of the problem, actually, was the competition that was going on on the left. So to your, to your point, uh, Will, about post-Sankara and whether or not the political left survived and what form it took, the PII actually joined the Popular Front, right? So the PAI was quick to sort of, you know, just say, heap it on Sankara's back and say, we'll join Campari. There are a couple of reasons for that and largely having to do with personality differences and some of it going back to the purging of the civilian left from uh, from government culminating finally in August of 1984 when the PII was officially pushed out of the CNR. Um, people like Adama Touré, people like Suman Touré, Philippe Udrago, Arbajalo, these others who had been supporters of the revolution, now they joined the Popular Front. Um, Suman Touré had been a friend of, of Sankara's going back to his time at, at Lycée and, and Bobo Gilasso. However, he was imprisoned, right, during the revolution. He made some statements. He was involved in labor activism, pushing back against the system. Eventually he was imprisoned. Uh, and then, um, and then, you know, once Sankara was killed, he joined the Popular Front. So it's hard to call that an independent oppositional political left as such. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but yes. Uh, that's, uh, I would uh, join you in that um, uh, statement that the opposition the left in Burkina Faso after Sankara was pretty much a very intellectual, um, so to say, and very much disconnected with the people. So when elections come, they are not in any position to mobilize the people and get any 
um, representatives in parliament, even when we were able to organize elections in 1991 and, and so on. So they quickly realized that uh, this is not working. So the best way to uh, be able to share, to get their share of the political cake is to um, either join Compowery and Compowery was all the time reaching out to them and telling them, hey, this is it. Uh, any, uh, if you look at the composition of the, his, uh, his cabinets, uh, different right. cabinets that came, yep. uh, you will quickly realize that those are people who were either against him or have voice and sort of contradiction with him and quickly he'll reach to them and then bring them in. Uh, if you want to stay outside and criticize, why don't you come in and help me improve it? And that was the politics of, of Kumbawi. To his credit, over the past, uh, the, the first, I would say, uh, or the second uh, uh, election, the second uh, term that he came to power on. And that actually played well in his favor. And uh, it also contributed enormously to uh, distract the opposition, the, the left the left wing, even uh, uh, recently, or maybe not quite recently, the 2005 presidential election, when the opposition had this wonderful idea of coming together and creating what they call OBU, Opposition Burkinabe Unifié, the unified front of the opposition. Um, he just played them out and uh, gave them some money and then came back and said, I gave them money. And they were not able to do it to go against him. So, and a lot of them were later co-opted in his uh, cabinet. Um, so that goes to say that uh, the opposition was very circumstantial, and most of them had loose convictions in what they were doing, or at least their convictions were not as tight and strong as Sankara's. And thinking about the. Uh the opposition in Burkina Faso and the ways in which all of these different forces often ended up being co-opted into Kampari's regime. Thinking to 2014 and the popular uprising, which was predominantly led by youth militancy and mobilizing the rhetoric, the legacy, the afterlives of Sankara to, to depose Kampari once and for all, and also in the successive period as others tried their, their best to, to install themselves into power, rejecting that as well. Um, thinking from 2014 to now, uh, Burkina Faso has, uh, has a democratically elected president. Uh, this president is unique in the fact that they have no prior military affiliation. They're also not an interim president and when considering a lot of the political forces which started to, to come together in, in and around 2014, um, such as Lebalai, Citoyen, uh, and, and all of these different civil society and grassroots organizations, uh, where are they now? And, and what role do they play in the Burkina political landscape? Because once again, there is a tremendously powerful way in which the legacy of Thomas Sakara remains, but has that led to uh, a desire for the implementation of his policies, for the revolutionary program that he presented at the time? Is socialism a word that that still has purchase in Burkina Bay society? Have people moved on from that? Uh, 
to what extent would it be possible to build a, a political project around Sankara's ideas now, notwithstanding that there are greater macroeconomic and external factors, which would obviously make that very difficult to do. Um, but in terms of who is pushing for, for that kind of, of reimagining that Sankara did, uh, where is that happening? And is that something that's coalescing into political project? Uh, Lasan, you wrote an article for, for Africa as a Country not long ago talking about the, the rebirth of, of student militancy and how at the university where you teach, students are, are slowly starting to, to make these ideas. Are students connecting with workers? Are these coalitions building? Uh, and, and what is the future of, of, of Sankarism, not only as an ideology, but as a, as a praxis in, in Burkina Faso? Um, so in Burkina, I can confidently say that that kind of grassroots movement is well alive, uh, considering the multitude of youth movement that claim that kind of a, a political um, uh, leniency and uh, and perhaps this is also in response to the disenchantment that they have with the current regime in terms of corruptions, in terms of uh, uh, the inability to bring social goods to uh, the wider population. But uh, ideologically, there might be a small core to it, which is still built around universities, but it still exists. Of course, you can make the argument that uh, youth movements like the Ballet Citoyen is tired and uh, uh, oftentimes divided, but the discourse remains strong. And, uh, and that, is, that gives us a little bit hope, of hope because the people in power might not, uh, these movements might not come to power, but they might be able to impact or influence certain changes among the people who are seeking to run for power. And to me, this is uh, one of the, the, the most interesting thing. Um, and today in Burkina, everyone talks politics. Everyone has a, a say in what is going on. Everyone is an expert in what is going on as politics. But the truth is that the youth is so awakened. They're so woke that uh, they are quick to go on the street, they are quick to denounce, they are quick to speak up, they are quick to go on radio. Um, around 2010, 2009, this is something that is quite unimaginable. Just a few people had the courage to stand up and say things that today would be considered to be outrageous. Um, so I don't know how much of that could coalesce to give us something politically significant, but the fact of the matter is that it is there. And uh, there's also this fear that it could be co-opted, um, uh, especially when you look at its uh, anti-French sort of uh, rhetoric, uh, its anti-international community rhetoric. Um, uh, observers might see that as a problematic issue, but the fact of the matter is that uh, resistance is still there. I, I talk to students in my classrooms and uh, uh, that kind of a soft um, rhetoric that professors are used to, to come in and pass is not flying anymore. And if you don't pay attention, you go in to teach uh, a small course and you end up talking politics all the time. Uh, students will lead you to talk politics. 
because that's what they're interested in. And that's uh, quite uh, fascinating to, to observe. And and uh, are they are they are students? Because thinking about continentally, right? Ever since twenty eleven, uh, there's been this mushrooming of movements across the African continent and an overrepresented demographic in the coalitions that build there are young people and and students and. I think a almost persistent, not necessarily problem, but something that is taking a long time is, is the extent to which students are able to connect with workers or farmers or other social groups. Um, and is that kind of, is that happening? Um, and is that being initiated? What's your, what's your read of, of the possibilities of, of building a, a, a new left-wing coalition uh, that draws from from Sankara, but obviously is is mindful of of the contemporary context and the ways in which a lot of that legacy, as you say, can 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 be co-opted. Uh, today, it is quite impossible for anyone to emerge in the political scene in Burkina Faso without them having the approval of the youth, without them going through the youth and testing, being tested, and having some conversation with them. It's quite impossible to compose, to, 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 to become a, a visible actor in the political arena without composing with the youth. And they will, be, they will ask questions that are difficult to answer. They would uh, put you uh, under the light, to, so to say. Um, and uh, they are also in uh, conversation with the older sort of uh, uh, grassroots movements, which to some extent, uh, the folks who mobilized the youth in 2011 are still actors. They are plain actors. They did not disappear. Contrary to what uh, uh, most people might uh, uh, think about it, right now they uh, and 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 what is also perhaps uh, something that I deplore is the fact that there's so many factions. And some of them are not in agreement, and it's very democratic. But at the same time, it's really um, uh, you have a lot of tendencies among the youth movement as well. Uh, recently, when Macron uh, invited the youth organizations and the civil society movement in Paris, uh, sorry, in, in France, uh, there was a lot of youth movement who were not represented, and they came out to speak openly about it. To them, this is these are youth movement uh, who were not really representative of the youth movement, the core youth movement of Burkina Faso. Those who played on that international stage do not represent the hardcore youth movement of Burkina Faso who know what they want, because the struggle here is at two levels. At least discursively, you see a struggle to change things domestically. But at the same time, you also have a discourse that projected itself, uh, is projected toward the international uh, community and international politics, specifically the role of France, the role of the USA, the role of the United Nations, and so on and so forth. So those kind of uh, grassroots movement are quite new, perhaps not super new, but uh, in the old days, grassroots movement are preoccupied with, with issues, domestic issues, more so than external issues. But today you have grassroots movement who 
have understood that these are not separate issues. These two issues go hands in hand. So it's, uh, it's I, I don't know how this is going to play out within the next uh, five, 10 years. But interestingly too, it's not just political movement, you also have religious movement entering this dance. Uh, in the old days, uh, the Muslim youth, for example, was not considered as a, a power player. Uh, but we've seen how they were able to maneuver things with the recent appointment of uh, uh, the president of the election commit, uh, commission. So it says a lot about how these new mobilizations are able to shape the course of, uh, of, uh, of the history. And we've also seen the recent election of, uh, of uh, the new president of the MPP, which is a young guy. And uh, he is pretty much supported by uh, youth, uh, the wing, uh, the youth wing of uh, MPP. Uh, without the support, he wouldn't have been uh, appointed as uh, uh, the president of the, the party. And uh, most people see him as the successor of uh, of, uh, of Chris, uh, Rock Marquis Lankaburi. So this goes on to say that the youth movements are pretty much um, alive, and. Uh, uh, can impact change in the coming years. Mm. And thinking about, you know, them impacting change, we've discussed how a lot of people draw from Sankara. As a final question then, would you say there is such a thing as Sankarism? So unlike a lot of his contemporaries, Sankara never really got the opportunity to, to develop uh, a body of thought, an outlook, so to speak. He was... Uh, a man of action, which coincidentally is also the, the title of, of the interview that you did with Benjamin Talton on, on Africa as a country, Brian. Uh, but in spite of that, a lot of people do look at his idiosyncratic mix of ideas as representing some kind of essential outlook. And when thinking about his married influences, the fact that he drew from Marxism, uh, the fact that he drew from you know, post-colonial third worldism, uh, he drew from uh, liberation theology. He had all of these influences. If it's a double-barreled question in the sense that is there such a thing as Sankarism? And, and if so, what would be the essence of Sankarism? What, what informed the, the, the fundamental basis of, of his outlook when one traces the, the development of his life uh, and understanding that he didn't have very long to to even clarify that for himself. You're on mute once again, Brian, there we go. My apologies, my apologies. Yeah, it, it probably depends on the audience that you're speaking to um, in terms of defining what Sankarism is. The generation of young people Lassan was talking about today, obviously have a different sense of what Sankara is or what he represents to them than the, the generation of young folks in the 1980s. But, I guess from the standpoint of just what Sankara was trying to achieve, what was on his agenda in terms of his progressive agenda, I mean, you can look at maybe not the methods and the procedures that he used, but the ideals that he had. Um, one thing is, is just in terms of democracy, right? He was very critical of bourgeois or liberal democracy. Holding elections was not, in his mind, democracy. Democracy required economic, political, social forms of equality and fairness across the entire country, right? So when given an opportunity to think about holding elections, well, he and his the folks around him determined that that was not a path they were going to pursue for the time being. 
that they were trying to achieve something more along the lines of direct democracy, grassroots democracy, radical democracy, giving people a voice, trying to decentralize power, redistribute resources across the country more evenly, um, to build healthcare uh, clinics and schools and so on and so forth, so that everyone had access to the resources of the state, especially when you're thinking about the backbone of the economy being um, the peasantry as cotton producers, right? Sankara viewed it as a very unfair system that most of the resources of the country were being consumed by the civil servants in Ouagadougou. So from, from, from the standpoint of building democracy, I think that's something that is admirable to try to redistribute resources. Then there's the focus on, on women. Can't argue with that, right? I mean, Sankara was a feminist. He declared very openly the importance of, of equality between men and women and trying to achieve that through the use of state power. He made some errors along the way. He realized that you couldn't just do it through laws and decrees and such, that you had to educate people. You had to make changes in the economy, the political economy, to give women access to opportunities. Um, but certainly, gender equality was on the agenda. The environment, taking care of the environment, right? Sankara came to power during this the drought, Sahel drought of 1983, 84, 85, during that period, right? Country was in many ways dependent on food aid. He tried to reverse that by uh, promoting self-reliance, by addressing environmental degradation through reforestation, through various environmental measures to protect the environment. That's obviously something you would want to retain in Sankarism. Um, corruption, fighting corruption. When Sankar came to power, the, the, the state coffers were empty and it was a corrupt system. Across the board, he cleaned out the corrupt, cleaned up the corruption. Sitwai, um, uh, Citoyen, uh, Citizen Broom was trying to do the same sort of thing. That's something that you would want to retain. Um, promoting greater equality in, in, in foreign relations, whether it's with France or any other countries, is something you would want to retain. Um, I mean, I think if you go through most of his policies, they, were, they had good intentions behind them. Um, the processes, the procedures, right, the ways in, which, ways in which he went about pursuing them you probably could not get away with today. That level of, of force, of use, the use of state power from above, you would not be able to achieve today. There'd be too much pushback. So somehow, I think it goes back to one of his ultimate goals, which was the raising of political consciousness, getting people to buy into these kinds of things, changing attitudes around gender, changing attitudes around consumption habits, consuming locally, things of that nature, um, Sankara was trying to promote. Um, and giving people a voice, getting people to feel that they were stakeholders, that they were buying into the system, whatever it was. Um, right now, I think, as Lasano is saying, there's a lot of mistrust. People don't trust their political leaders. Um, they, there's, there's this feeling the state is very remote from them. There's, there's this disconnect. So integrating them into politics, as Lasano is talking about, the importance of being paid to the youth is, is crucial. Um, but as far as, you know, what is Sankarism, that also depends on who you talk to. I remember talking to Valer Somme, one of uh, Sankara's close friends, and saying, well, if Sankara was alive today, he wouldn't be a Sankarist, um, because things keep changing generationally and politically. Nowadays, there are new standards around democracy. That didn't exist in the 1980s. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there. Lasan, anything uh, you'd like to add? Yeah. To right. Um, to add a little bit to what Brian just um, um, explained, Sankarism remains this elusive concept that uh, even the people who claim to be Sankarists and so on and so forth, when you sit down with them and you ask them, so in what way are you a Sankarist? They will recount to you what Sankara did and uh, was great. 
and they will talk about Sankara as a missed opportunity for Burkina Faso, for Africa, but they don't want to go back to live like the way Sankara lived. They're not ready to give up certain privileges that they have in society. If there's anything, they would like to have more. Um, so Sankarism remains this uh, ideal in its ideal form of a, a different society, the need for a better society is still there and it's still going to continue to persist as long as uh, Burkina uh, is lagging behind in uh, terms of uh, corruption, in terms of uh, uh, social development, in terms of uh, political emancipation of the youth and so on and so forth. So, but to see Sankarism in its proxy in Burkina is quite, uh, it's quite difficult. But the ideal behind Sankarism as a vision remains and uh, will continue to remain, hopefully. It, it, it will, it will indeed. Uh, long live Sankarism. Gentlemen, thank you so much for, for coming onto the show today. I really appreciate it. Uh, please, to all of our listeners, do subscribe to AAC Talk wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We've just been chatting to Lasan Huidraugo, as well as Brian Peterson, about the legacy of Thomas Sankara in the wake of the trial to finally hold his murderers to account. Uh, the show was produced by Antoinette Engel in Cape Town. And as always, we will be back next week with another episode discussing politics, culture, and history from an African perspective. Abba la réaction internationale, abba l'impérialisme, abba le néocolonialisme, abba le fantochisme. Gloire éternelle au peuple qui lutte pour leur liberté. Gloire éternelle au peuple qui décide de s'assumer de pour leur dignité. Victoire éternelle au peuple d'Afrique, d'Amérique latine et d'Asie qui lutte. La patrie ou la mort, nous vaincrons. Je vous remercie.